Okay, well, good morning. Great to uh, see you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me for uh, one, one last time to the book of Ephesians? We've been looking at the book of Ephesians this fall, and we are uh, finishing our series this morning in Ephesians chapter 6 as we uh, approach Thanksgiving, and then in two weeks we'll be starting our, our Advent series leading up to, uh, to Christmas so Ephesians chapter 6, if you, have, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible near you, and you can find Ephesians 6 on page 979. And would you stand with me as we read this last section of Ephesians um, chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Let's get of our attention to God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers and over against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am. And what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you be with us now as we turn our attention one last time to the book of Ephesians. God, maybe we hear this charge that you um, have delivered to us by your servant, the Apostle Paul. God, would the truth of the gospel so um, infiltrate all that we are, all that we think, all that we feel. May we know that we are secure because you have made us your children. That we would be able to live out these words that he calls us to here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, a couple of months ago, when we started looking at uh, the book of Ephesians, when we started our series in the book of Ephesians, I started off by talking about Harry Potter. And uh, we started off talking about the reality that Harry Potter is this, is this boy who is being raised in horrendous circumstances by his aunt and uncle, the Dursleys, 
who are just horrible and they mistreat Harry while spoiling their own son, but everything changed for Harry Potter when he found out that he had a family. And he discovered that his parents didn't die in a car crash, but that, um, that Harry was loved. And that because of uh, who his family was, that, he, um, that his life had meaning, that he was actually famous, that he was wealthy, that he had these powers, that he uh, had always kind of knew, known were there, but never really understood, never really knew what to do with. And suddenly finding out that he had a family brought his life into, uh, into alignment. And it, he, he began to understand that, that he had a purpose and that there was, a, there was meaning in his life because of who his family was. And throughout this series, as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians, I've been trying to, uh, trying to kind of make this clear that what Paul is saying is, um, is that, that what is true for Harry Potter is true for you. That your life begins to have meaning when you discover that you have a family. God, God says in Ephesians that you were once strangers and aliens. You were alienated from the promises of God, but now you have been made members of the household, the family of God. And because God is your father, you have an inheritance. Um, your life really cannot go off the rails. There is a safety net because you have a father. Your life has meaning because your life has purpose. And you now have a community in the church. You are reconciled to God and you are given a family. And that's how we started off nine weeks or so ago talking about the book of Ephesians. And after that first uh, sermon, somebody emailed me and said, you know, there's actually a further point of connection there to be made in relation to Harry Potter. Because uh, this person emailed me and said, imagine that Harry Potter, having discovered who his family was, didn't actually go off to Hogwarts. And he never met Ron and Hermione and uh, he just stayed home and lived at the Dursleys in these horrible conditions. And his point was that for Harry Potter, finding out who he was and who his family was meant that he had a destiny. Um, when Harry finds out who he is, he says to Hagrid the giant, he says, I'm just Harry. And Hagrid says, just Harry? You know, there's, he's no longer just Harry when he discovers who his family is because uh, the mo- at the moment Harry finds out who his family is, there becomes an inevitability about his future. There becomes um, a, a, like a givenness about what he will step into. And though he doesn't begin to understand the details at the moment, his life ultimately, inevitably, is being drawn into this battle where he will eventually be um, at the intersection of this, this battle between good and evil. In other words, discovering that he had a family meant two things for Harry Potter. It meant first that he was loved and therefore secure, but secondly, it also meant that he would one day go into battle. And so just as we began with Harry Potter, this morning I want to finish with Harry Potter because that's how the book of Ephesians finishes. And I have to be honest with you, that I didn't, uh, over the last several months as I've been kind of preparing for this and then working our way through the series, I was utterly confused about Ephesians chapter 6. Because there's this kind of warm and nurturing message of, hey, there's this great reality. If you're a Christian, you have a family, and isn't that great news? And then in chapter 6, it seems like Paul makes this massive, like, 
uh, abrupt turn, and he says, you know, after all these warm fuzzies, he says, now get ready to fight. It's like, where did that, where did that come from? And I couldn't understand why until it just kind of hit me, like a ton of bricks this week. <coughs> that the reason that Paul has made such a huge deal about the reality of the family of God And the reason that he has emphasized these grand truths that we are united with Christ, that we have an inheritance, um, the reason that he has belabored the security of the family, of the Christian in the family of God, is because once we discover who we really are, our lives begin to take on a sense of inevitability. There is a battle that we are being drawn into. Paul is saying that as God works out his plan in human history, as he works out this plan, which, which Paul has described as transforming the world from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, he's now saying, if you think that that is going to happen without a struggle, then you are profoundly naive. There is going to be a battle as we press into this. And if you are part of the family of God, if you are a Christian, if you name the name of Jesus, then you are being drawn into this battle as well. And I think we have to pause for just a moment of honesty and admit that that is not at all the way that we think about Christianity in the 21st century, is it? I mean, let's just, like, can I just be blunt and put this out on the table? Like, especially for those of us who are, like, fairly successful in life, who are educated, especially for those of us that are Anglo, I mean, let's just get it all out there, right? We don't think of life as a battle. And Paul is saying that there is evil in our world, and it is the vocation of the church to struggle against it. For most of us, that thought has never occurred to us. And so I almost need to convince you that there is a battle before we actually can look at what Paul says about what to do about the battle. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is the reality of the battle The reality of the battle, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, put on the armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we all say, wow, how cute is that? This guy still thinks that there is such a thing as the devil. Wow, like, isn't that old-fashioned and quaint. I've not heard the devil mentioned on NPR recently. Um, Like, we we think of, like, the devil as this guy with a pitchfork and a bifurcated tail and uh, wearing, he's got horns on his head and he's wearing red pajamas and he's kind of, like, sinister but a little bit cute, right? Um, We don't, do we really think that, I mean, the devil, we have tended to ignore the possibility, even the possibility that behind evil there is actually a personality who is responsible for evil. And so we live in a culture where we've tended to, to look at evil in two ways that minimize the existence of anybody actually being responsible or culpable for evil. And the first thing that we have um, done to evil is we sort of treat evil like a cartoon. Uh, there's a guy named Will Willimon, whose parents apparently were not that creative in naming their children, but he's a, a scholar. And uh, he, um, he pointed out that, especially in the 80s and 90s, I mean, think about the, uh, 
the characterizations of evil that we would have in movies with characters like Freddy Cougar and Jason. You know, these like if, if evil is ever personified, it is in such a larger than life cartoonish way that it it it, it um it's good for entertainment. But it's so outlandish that it doesn't have any bearing on reality. It's great for entertainment, but it's not real. And so we dismiss the idea that there would be people who are responsible for evil by making it just like a cartoon. And then the second way that our culture has dealt with evil is to attribute all evil to natural causes. And of course we see this in things like natural disasters, um, where we just talk about, well, that's just kind of the way the world that we live in works. But we also attribute, um, you know, more sinister, more overtly sinister events to natural causes as well. Uh, when the Columbine shooting, school shooting happened, you know, all those years ago, which at least in my mind was kind of the first of these um, mass shootings to grab national headlines, there was a rush to explain the cause of this tragedy by attributing it to things like bad parenting. Right, a natural explanation for the existence of this evil, evil tragedy. Or in the 80s when I was growing up, there was this massive campaign, Dare to Say No to Drugs, which was basically an attempt to say that the cause of addiction um, is, is natural, and if we just educate people against addiction, that therefore addiction and drug, drug addiction will no longer be a problem in our world. Listen, I'm not saying that either of those things is entirely like insufficient. Well, it is entirely insufficient. There is certainly truth that there are natural causes to evil. But what all these explanations of evil have in common is this, that they deny even the possibility that there is a person behind evil events who is culpable, who is guilty, who is responsible for the existence of evil. And now I think we live in a time where we have this like almost identity crisis when it comes to evil because the possibility that evil was just a mirage evaporated for most Americans on a morning in the fall of 2011. Because when those horrible you know, events took place in a terrorist attack in Washington, D.C. and uh, in New York City, what we discovered is that the people behind those attacks were not crazy, deranged people who just woke up one morning and decided that they were going to inflict harm on people who were just minding their own business. For like that would be like that's the cartoonish explanation, right? And the more we learned about the people behind those events was that these were actually very sane, passionate people who were executing a very well orchestrated plan. And we live in this place where we can no longer just um, say that evil has natural causes, but we don't know what to do with it because we don't want to say that there are evil people. And behind the people who are evil is ultimately one who is the embodiment of evil itself. David Brooks is a, a columnist. He writes for the uh, New York Times, and he wrote a, about a, an eight-year-old Peruvian girl named Yuri and she said, uh, David Brooks writes that Yuri's 
body was found in the street one morning, her skull crushed in, her legs wrapped in cables, and her clothes pulled down around her ankles. The evidence, he said, pointed to a member of one of the richer families in the town. And so the police and prosecutors destroyed the evidence. Her clothing went missing. A sample of bodily fluids that could have identified the perpetrator was thrown out. And a bloody mattress was sliced down by a third so that the blood stains could be discarded. Yuri's family wanted to find the killer, but they couldn't afford to pay the prosecutor, so nothing was done. The family sold all their possessions to hire lawyers who took the money and then abandoned the case. Now, does that make you angry? <laughs> we don't even know who that girl is, right? But clearly there was somebody responsible for those crimes. And those in authority and positions of power said, we don't want to know who is responsible, and is that not exactly what we are doing when we deny that it is possible that there is a devil who is the one who is ultimately standing behind all evil acts? That's where we are as a culture. Evil is real, and it doesn't go away because we bury our head in the sands and just try to ignore it. And Christians especially have got to wake up to this reality. Because the danger is not that evil will overpower God. There is no chance of that happening. At the end of the day, we have to remember that Satan is just God's lackey. There is no chance that evil will overpower the goodness of God. But there is a very real danger that Christians will just remain kind of nonchalantly ignorant of the reality of evil in our world. And we will therefore just stroll into the middle of a situation and not realize that we are being caught up in a battle and we will be utterly overwhelmed because we are unprepared for it. Why is this so important? Imagine there are two children, two people, two groups of people, and one group of people is raised with the belief and understanding that life will be difficult, life is a struggle. And there's another group of people who are raised with the understanding or the belief that everything good in life will be given to you. You deserve it. I mean, how different are those two people, those two groups of people going to, what is the, I mean, the difference in their experience of life is massively profound, isn't it? I uh, got a glimpse of that several years ago in uh, kind of a funny event when our older two boys um, joined their first soccer team, this was several years ago, we were living out in a different state, and uh, they were playing in this summer rec league, and the teams were organized by neighborhood, and so our boys showed up for their first game, and we come, you know, our team coming from a neighborhood that is, you know, reasonably affluent, well-educated, um, we come onto the field and our boys come with a certain group of expectations and we played a team from a neighborhood that was more working class, more racially diverse, and the game that ensued between these two teams was utterly hilarious because the, uh, the team, our team, you know, <laughs> our boys were, just had this expectation that somebody would hand them the soccer ball. <laughs> 
And the other team had the expectation that nobody's going to hand you anything in life. And so they went and took the soccer ball and they crushed these kids. (laughs) They crushed us. And that's the world that many of us live in. Um, This week, I got an email from the team mom of another soccer team to arrange the end of the year soccer party. And in the email, she was talking about when the party was going to be and what would happen and giving a gift for the coaches. She said this sentence. She said, the boys definitely deserve a fun celebration and the coaches most certainly deserve a little gift for their patience and dedication to the team. And I have to say, I have no problem with throwing a party at the end of the year and giving a gift and saying thank you to the coaches. But I have a massive problem with using the word deserve in that sentence. (laughs) Because what we're saying is these six year old boys like you played a game and somehow that entitles you to a party you desert like you want to throw a party for kids great but if we raise our kids thinking that after you play and let's be honest like they did it was not that impressive (laughs) spectacularly unimpressive (laughs) and that entitles you to a party if that is the world that we are is that If we go into life, I mean, think about this. If we go into life expecting that life is a battle and it turns out not to be, then like, okay, great. (laughs) But what if we go into life expecting that we are entitled to, that we deserve, like every good thing should just be handed to us. And then we discover somewhere along the way that life is actually hard and reality sets in and it, it will crush us. It will crush us. And I think that we are living in a time when that is happening en masse in our culture. We expect ease, but we are faced almost every week with news of another mass shooting in our country. We think that we deserve success, and we live in a time when every couple days, in the news, there's another headline with another successful person who's using their power to oppress others. And it's hard for me to believe that we will go anywhere as a culture than other, other than just descending into cynicism when we think that we should be given all of these easy, good, comfortable things and then real life actually sets in. And we start to think, well, that's just kind of the way that the world is. And that's what successful people do with their success. They take what they want. So do we just give in to cynicism, or what if we go the other route and we deny the premise? We go back to the starting point and say, actually, there's a massive problem here at the beginning, because there is real evil in our world, and behind those evil acts, there are people who perpetrate evil acts, and behind them, there is one who is the embodiment of evil. Paul calls the Diabolos here, and he's not a cartoonish character. Um, he hates you he is a liar and he is a schemer and he will do anything he can to mess up your life and some of what he will do is make you think he's your friend but he's not evil is real but you have a father who loves you you have a family that stands with you and you've been given a mission to go out into battle 
to resist evil in this world. Okay, and that's just the first point. <laughs> Secondly, the location of the battle. Where is this battle being fought? I have to say, I mean, let me just say this right at the beginning. I have heard all kinds of kooky explanations for like the, where this spiritual battle against uh, the principalities and powers. I mean, actually, there are some of you who grew up in a Christian subculture might remember a series of books named after words in this passage about, you know, you're just going about your day, but there's evil demons, and they're fighting, and they got swords, and you can't... It's like, um, if you've seen, those of you who've seen, well, I've been watching Stranger Things, you know, the up, it's like that, right? The upside down, it's this spiritual world that you don't really see, but sometimes, every once in a while, there's this fluke interaction with our real world, and it messes things up. Craziness, Okay. Two people separately, two separate people this week have uh, talked to me, uh, told me stories about people rebuking the demon of the missed parking spot. You know, cursed Satan, I wanted to park in the front row. Uh, you know, or you've got to, like, bind Satan when you walk into your house by saying this per... What? Just kooky Christian explanations. Listen, where is this battle being fought? The key for understanding this is in verse 12. Paul says... We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, and here's the key phrase, in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. Paul has already used that phrase. If you go back to Ephesians 1, verse 3, the very first part of the book, he talks about being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And when we looked at that passage, what we said was that um, Paul is saying that when God is doing what he's doing in your life, the main thing he is doing is he is changing your status. And the way that he describes that change in status is that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so what he's saying here is that this battle that goes on with the devil is going on, that battle is being fought over your status in Christ. Or in other words, the struggle that goes on with the devil is going to happen on the battlefield of your identity. Guys, that is a huge point. Um, the battle that you are engaged in as a member of God's family will happen in the place where you struggle to believe who you really are. That's what he means when he says that this is not a battle with flesh and blood. It's not over material things or possessions or land. It's a battle for who you really are. It's a battle for your soul. It's a battle for how you under, who you understand yourself to be. Think about what Paul has just been talking about. Remember last week we talked about, um, as Paul is applying the gospel and talking about how the reality of the gospel uh, of the family works itself out in all aspects of our lives, and he talks about our relationships. And he's talking about how the gospel applies the way that we live together in our marriages and with our children and in our workplaces. And he doesn't follow that up by just swerving off the road and all of a sudden talking about something totally different. And what he's saying is that the battle for your identity is going to be in those very places, in your marriage, in your family, in your place of work where you are going to be tempted with this struggle over who you really are, over where you find your value. In other words, the place where the battle happens is in all the places 
where you're going to be tempted to find your identity. You have to understand that. Because once we understand that, then we can understand why he, the way he talks about the battle, he says that we wrestle. In this battle, we wrestle. And um, it's interesting, Tim Keller pointed out um, that he does not say that this battle, he doesn't describe this battle as like a shootout where we are far removed from the enemy and we can just lob prayer bombs over the wall and walk away and everything's fine. But he says, the way he describes this battle is that we wrestle. Um, It's close. And it implies that there's a lot of back and forth in this battle. Why? Well, isn't it just true that in our lives, things like our marriages and our families and our jobs are always trying to get the upper hand? We're constantly struggling to hold back this tendency to believe that we are valuable because of what we do. And God comes to us and says, no, you have value because I created you in my own image. And when we think that we are valuable because of what we do, we have this tendency to be very self-protective and not admit failure. And so we don't listen to the good news of the gospel when Jesus comes to us and says, you are forgiven and I'm, I'm making you clean. I have made you clean. I'm healing you. We don't listen. When we let our marriage or our family or our work gain the upper hand and we let our identity rest on these things, that's when we begin to tell ourselves that we, like we deserve certain things in life. Um, we work hard so we deserve to indulge ourselves a little bit, don't we? And we are so weary from all of our doing and all of our striving to build up an identity for ourselves that when it comes to God, we can only conceive of him in the same way. And so we think of God and Jesus and things like going to church as just one more thing on the list of things that I have to do or probably things at the bottom of the list of things I have to do. People tell me all the time that they can't go to church because it's the only day that they have to rest. Church is not a place. It's a place. The whole reason that we're here is to rest. Because going to church is the only place in your life where you are going to be told that you are valuable not because of what you do, but because of who you are and whose you are. Guys, there's like 75 minutes on Sunday morning. That is the only place in your life where you do not hear that you are primarily valuable if you pull your own weight. The battle is over the question of who you really are. And the beauty of the gospel is this, that on the cross, Jesus paid the guilt for your sin and gave you in exchange his perfect record of righteousness. He replaces your identity, the identity that you've created, the identity that you've earned with the identity that he has achieved on your behalf. And so when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin, your failure, your striving, your exhaustion, but he sees the perfect record of Jesus. He has given you a new identity in Christ. St. Augustine was a uh, pastor uh, way back in the day. And before he became a Christian, Augustine was a wild man. He was uh, sexually promiscuous. 
And after he had become a Christian, he was one day walking down the street and he passed one of his former lovers. And he just walked right past her and the woman, so offended, turned around and said to him, Augustine, it is I. And he turned around and said, yes, but it is no longer I. And that is a picture of the gospel giving him and you a new identity. You are no longer the person that you were because of Jesus. Your identity is hidden in the heavenly places with Christ. That is where the battle will be fought. Thirdly, the weapons for the battle. What resources do we have in this struggle against evil? Again, all kinds of just weirdness have been written and said about the armor of God and how do you properly put on the breastplate of righteousness and um, what does it mean that the gospel is the, are the shoes of readiness? You know, like all kinds of elaborate whatever. Um, just Can we just look at what he actually says here? Um, the language that Paul uses, he says this several times. He says uh, in verse 13, I think he says this a couple of times. He says, take up the armor of God, which implies that it's already there. It's at your feet. You simply need to put it on and embrace it. Um, on our, so I'm playing on this adult soccer team. I don't know why there's so many soccer illustrations today. But uh, I'm playing. Some of you guys are, were on the soccer team together. And there's this thing I've noticed that happens often where... You know, you're running down the field and a defender kind of engages somebody and the ball flies and, and the person doesn't, can't see where the ball has gone. And somebody will shout out, it's right there, it's at your feet. And that's what Paul is saying here. The armor of God is just, it's right there. It's at your feet. You have to simply take it up and put it on. These are the weapons that Paul mentions. Look at this. He says, truth Righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, spirit of God, and the word of God. And the thing that all of those things have in common is that you don't do any of them. They are all things that God has done on your behalf. You simply need to take them up, put them on, clothe yourself in what Jesus has done for you, and you will find that you are clothed in the armor of God clothed for battle. And then Paul talks about prayer. He starts with strength. He says um, in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he finishes the whole book, the whole section with prayer. Those who pray or those who are strong will never pray. Those who are strong in their own strength will never pray. But when we know ourselves to be weak and when we know that we are utterly dependent on the strength of God alone, when we realize that we have been drawn into this battle and of ourselves we have no resources to fight or to protect ourselves, then we begin to pray. Then we begin to call out to God. He says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, keeping alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. That is the most comprehensive sentence in the Bible about prayer. Pray for everything, all the time, with all that you are. And it startles me how often um, 
you know, I, I, from time to time I'll text people, ask people, hey, how can I be praying for you this week? It startles me how often people say, oh, no, I'm fine. Um, like there's no major crisis going on in my life right now. Don't pray. I don't need you. I don't need you to pray for me. But you know what startles me more than that is how often I find in myself a lack, an utter lack of prayer. Because the picture that the Bible paints is that we are going to storm the gates of hell with squirt guns. And unless God shows up, we are totally screwed. So we pray, we pray, we pray. God has sent us into a world to tell others the good news of Jesus. And the people that he sent us to tell about the good news of Jesus are fighting back. How in the world are we going to have to pray? We don't have the ability to do what God has called us to do. Somehow I think I can do all of this without prayerfully depending on God. And if he doesn't show up, we are toast before we even begin. And so we call out to him. We are dependent on him. We are only strong in him. Paul said that he had this thing that afflicted him and over and over and over again he asked God would you remove this would you remove this would you remove this and God said no and he said no and he said no and then Paul said um, God having said no he said my grace is sufficient for you my grace is enough for you because my power is made perfect when you are weak when we know that we are weak and we call out to God, then he is strong in us. So we pray. And finally, Paul says, pray for me too. And I think this is just so moving. Because you remember, I've told you several times where Paul is when he writes this letter. He's in prison. He says this here. He says, I'm in chains. Some people think he's in chains in prison. He's chained to a guard. The guard is rotated every four hours. He's cold in the book of Timothy, which he writes at the same time. He says to Timothy, bring my coat when you come. <coughs> bring my scrolls so I have something to read. But here he says, pray for me. And how does he ask this church to pray for him? Does he say, Pray for me that I will be released. Pray for me that I'll be comfortable. Pray for me that I'll be set free. No, he says, pray for me that I would be bold in proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> I think it's funny, actually, the way he says it. Verse 19, he says, also pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And it seems like what he's saying is, I'm going to say something very boldly. <laughs> and would you pray that the words that come out of my mouth are gospel words? I feel a certain kinship with him there. I'm chained to this soldier and I get a new one every four hours. Would you pray that I explain the gospel to every single one of them? We pray for safety. We pray for health. Those are the two things that we tend to pray for. When um, the apostle, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, uh, what did Jesus tell his followers to pray for? 
said, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus tells us, pray that God's kingdom would expand. Paul says, pray for the mission. Don't pray for my comfort. Pray for the mission. If I'm going to, if this is the end for me, pray that it's just the beginning for the church. The Bible tells us to pray for the kingdom, pray for the church, pray for its pastors. I heard a story about a, a pastor whose son was a, um, a soldier. He was in Afghanistan. He called his dad and said, Dad, we're going into Helmand province. Would you pray for me? And the pastor with a lump in his throat said, what do you want me to pray? You know, pray that I'll be safe. Pray that I'll come home. He had said, Dad, I think we're going to lose one-tenth of our men in this fight. Pray for me. Dad says, what do you want me to pray? He says, pray that I would do my duty. Pray that I won't compromise. That's what we should be praying for. And so can I just, I hope this isn't indulgent, but can I just ask you to pray for me? To pray for our church. family is getting on a plane and we're going to Hawaii. My parents are flying us all out to celebrate their 50th anniversary and we're going to have a week of rest and then we're going to come home and uh, we're about as a church to do something that we've never done before and we're going to challenge you to do something bigger than you have ever done before and this morning I got an email from a visitor, somebody who's been coming to our church, visiting our church, that says, you know, we're gonna we're gonna look at some other churches. And it's amazing how quickly discouragement sets in. Can I just say, don't ever send that email on a Sunday morning to a pastor. <laughs> Would you pray that I don't listen to the evil one that says you're not good enough? Would you pray for me not to be discouraged? Would you pray for me to not compromise? Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for our staff? Pray for Jason. Pray for Ashley. Would you pray for our congregation? Would you pray for your neighbors? Would you pray for your friends, your coworkers? Would you pray for people all around us? I meet people every day who say, I believe in God but they've already lost the battle over their identity because they believe that they must relate to God in the same way that they relate to everything else in their life, which means that God is just one more hard thing I have to figure out how to do and I'm exhausted and I don't have time. Would you pray for them? Because it's not true. But nobody will tell them if we don't. Would you pray that we would find our strength in the Lord and the power of his might. The bonds of familial love will be tested in the reality of battle and will be borne out in our prayer or lack there. I'll finish with this. Yesterday, uh, we've been in this phase with one of our kids where those of you who are parents that understand, you just go through these seasons where it's like everything is awful all the time with you know, it's just developing. I don't know what it is, but it's awful. 
And the way that this has kind of gone out, uh, got progressed with this one of our kids is that pretty much like he does not want to listen to anything that he doesn't want to listen to. <laughs> and when something happens and he doesn't like it, he screams and freaks out and melts down and sticks his finger in his ears. And yesterday I just had it and I put him in timeout in the bathroom. And after he had stopped thrashing around, I went in and I sat down on the floor with him and I looked him in the eye and I gave him a hug and I said, I love you. I am your dad. You have to believe that I love you. <coughs> and I love you no matter what you do. I love you when you are a pain in the neck. But it's so much more fun to love you and you're going to have a lot better time if you can start listening to some things that you don't want to hear every once in a while. It's not going to be the end of the world. I love you. And amazingly, it worked. <laughs> and we just had this like great day. And when I put him to bed, I gave him a hug and I said, I love you. I had such a great day with you. And I said, you know, you can do hard things in life. This isn't the last time we're going to have to have that conversation. Because life is hard. But it's okay. We can do hard things. I'm your dad. You have a great family. And I love you. And that's what I want you to hear as we finish Ephesians. You have a father who loves you. You have a family who stands with you. And you can do hard things. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you and praise you for this incredible book. And I pray that um, if you would use this book in the life of our church in just a fraction of the way in which you've used it in my life over the last two months, uh, it would be time well spent for us. God, we can't ultimately convince ourselves that any of this is true. We cannot get this down into our souls the way we need it unless your spirit comes and makes it real in us. And so I pray, I pray that you would. Would you convince us that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ? He has done everything on our behalf. And help us to put on the armor of God, to take up what Jesus has done for us so that we can stand firm that we can be prepared for the battle that you've called us to engage in. Would you do that in us? Would you use Resurrection of Sea to grow your kingdom here in South Orange County? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.